reason you haven't felt it is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. Is that right? You're born alone and you die alone, and this world just drops a bunch of rules on top of you to make you forget those facts, but I never forget. I'm living like there's no tomorrow, because there isn't one. I think I realized it until this moment. But it must be hard being a man, too. Dami i gospoda. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first ever Russian Fyodor Dostoevsky edition of Nick's Nonfiction with your host, Nick Muniz often referred to as the onus of bonus, bringing you a very special episode in our time of need, a quarantine, and a very thematic episode, the underground man, Fyodor maybe himself, giving us a multiple decade account of self-isolation. He is the king of quarantine. We are going to be learning from the best, diving deep into the minds of one of the first introspective authors of all time. This is our most existential episode to date, hands down. Many of you out there are having plentiful personal realizations at this time, and we are going to be doing that along Fyodor's journey. He takes us in his first book. This is his breakthrough novel. You'll learn today, I'm sure as you've learned over the past few weeks, that it can always be worse. And we have the accounts of a man that has been in a gulag. I like to tell myself, when you're having a bad day at work, at least you're not in a gulag. There's a guy in solitary confinement right now. It could always be worse. <laughs> and so whether that confinement is in your own castle at a time like this, or in a wet, Siberian, terrible nightmare, we learn to get through that. This book, halfway through, may be the most iconic Russian poem of all time, The Apropos of the Wet Snow, written by Fyodor. It snuck into his beautiful first novel it's broken into two halves nicely done the first part is a profile of the underground man how he got to be at this point in his life at 40 years of age and then the second half is going to be the memories what he cannot get over in his mind and has led him to this point a little about the author our man Fyodor Dostoevsky we are going to have to have his future books on in future shows for sure he was born in 1821, died in 1881. That is 60 short years of Russian hell. Sure, it felt like an eternity for him, but he is probably the most uni- the most well-known Russian author. Name another, Anastasia. See, nobody knows who wrote the book. You only know Anastasia. I bet half the people just thought that was a Disney movie. Dostoevsky, our boy Das, his dad was in the army, and uh, his mom was a stay-at-home You'll see this happens a lot if you were lucky enough to not be walking the streets of St. Petersburg at the time. So his mom was a stay-at-home, and it makes sense when you hear Fyodor was the second of seven kids. Dad had very high expectations, being one of the first boys. He sent him to engineering school, which is, of course, why Fyodor became a writer. And his dad was killed after all the seven kids was born, so he could have been in his teens. But his dad was killed by the town surf, like the town broke. The druid of the town, the bottom of the bottom, he stabbed Fyodor's dad. 
And that is why he said he was always obsessed with crime, written entire novel, one of the most best-selling novels of all time, Crime and Punishment. So in and out of that engineering school, he spent two years in the Army 1800s of Russia. They were having the Japanese-Russian wars at that time. Maybe he got to go put on some white face paint and play with fans. It was only two years into his Army career that he wrote Poor Folk, and that novel actually broke out on the spot. Immediate and popular success. Obviously not a bestseller, but his name was on the market for people who were reading in Russia at the time. Probably a small amount of people considering nobody was literate. And Poor Folk, that first book was considered the first time the first author to examine the psychological complexities of a man's inner feelings and the workings of their mind, which you're supposed to act for all of eternity that you don't have feelings. The man is stern and smoldering. Jesse smoldering, eh? Maybe Jesse was an underground man. That joke will make sense in an hour if you've never read the book. And where else to dive into the sufferings of man than the history of Russia? Just starvation, women that are hot for a 20-year window and then explode into babushkahood, turnips. If you eat turnips for every deal, no wonder you're fucking angry. You're hungover for half the day until you get to party and squat and drink vodka all night to the Russian rocket. Maybe it's not too bad. Fyodor knows balance. After the army years when he knew he could get make a living writing, he became Fyodor, and he was well known by the government too because he was a writer, he became involved in political intrigues, which were uh, not like court cases, but you're basically being investigated by the state. You were starting to be canceled. You were becoming an unperson. what we're getting to 1984 levels now. Dostoevsky, he leaned into it. He's like, if I'm going to be banned, then I might as well write about all the touchiest topics that I've wanted to. His friends at the time were deemed treasonous revolutionaries, and they were put in prison, and then eventually he was associated with them and put in the gulag as well. But this is, think about it, one generation before Stalin. And where do you think Stalin learned all his tricks, be paranoid as hell, and put everyone in a prison in the middle of nowhere? Dostoevsky is like the model for why do you think there were no good Russian authors for a hundred years afterwards? Because they cranked down on that shit. He uh, squeaked through the cracks. And, of course, they didn't want people writing about crime. His book is called Crime and Punishment. That one, if you've read it, you may have to read it for school. Raskolnikov, he kills the town debt collector. And every, she owes everybody money. And he's like Robin Hood. He just kills the lady. Sorry to spoil the book, it's 200 years old. He kills the debt collector and he's like on trial and every the jury wants to let him go because he let everyone's debt off, but of course he committed a crime. So Dostoevsky explores these gray, explores these gray areas. And when he went to the gulag, he said he saw people like die on the firing wall. He saw the extent of the lack of human care. Like the people that were telling you you have to self-quarantine they were the ones that were hoarding all the toilet paper last week like you see in these times of desperate measures people are only out for themselves and um Dostoevsky saw that in the worst environments in the world in gulags another one I want to read one of the best-selling books of all time the gulag archipelago I feel like that'd be a good read for the show I'm gonna have to write that down 
And so when they released him, he had to do four years in the army to get back to society. Like um, he was taught in the gulag to become a good Slavic. You're supposed to think Russians are a special race and that suffering is what builds a man, which is like half true. But that's probably what Siberian brainwashing looks like. And so he had to go serve the state. And then uh, in 1864 was when he wrote, he was finally out of the army at that point, Notes from Underground. And then 1866, just a couple years later, was Crime and Punishment. Some people consider Notes from Underground a pretext to Crime and Punishment. You see a lot of... There's not even a main character in Notes from Underground. He calls him the Underground Man. And he has a lot of... uh, similarities to Raskolnikov, the young guy in Crime and Punishment. So Fyodor blew up a couple times throughout his career. He had to serve and then couldn't dine in all the riches. And then after that, he wrote The Brothers Karamazov, which is considered his masterpiece. So those two aren't even his best works. He never got to experience those lavish luxuries of being an international author. When he wrote Notes from Underground, he was like the starving artist at that point. So this is some raw shit. And let's get into it, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be ten parts. First part, like I said before, is about the underground man. And then we are taking a little journey through his memories. Part one, the underground man. We start... On a cold, wet, snowy night, alone in his apartment is the underground man, and he is standing up addressing a fake audience to an empty apartment. He feels sick and spiteful, and he's looking at himself in the mirror from time to time, just seeing how hard on the eye he is at this age. And he thinks he's uh, probably got some sort of liver disease going, as he has uh, acid reflux aplenty. He had what he called a case of the spits, which um, this is what we used to call in college, you know, when you get like absurdly drunk and uh, you get that weird tasting spit. And if you swallow it, that's the chemical indicator for your stomach to throw up. There's more science behind it than dudes getting drunk. But the spits back here, I guess he has like the chronic spits and he's getting some sort of liver disease. But he refers to himself here a decaying man trying to put his story together, figuring his life out retroactively. He is one of the first anti-heroes of all time. You don't want to root for this guy. He's a fat, neckbeard, World of Warcraft wizard in today's (laughs) scope of this type of guy, probably. But we'll see. We'll learn more about him. Why would you want to root for him? You'll see throughout. He's one of the first negative heroes. The underground man knows he has this drinking problem, but he refuses to see a doctor out of spite. And he knows it's the spite that causes the pain ultimately, but then the drinking quells the pain. He thinks what adds to his spite is he began working for the government 20 years ago, which is when he considered himself to be jaded. So he's 40 years old now, since the age of 20 almost, he's been working at this dead-end job. He said he never even took a bribe in those two decades, even though seeing plenty of his co-workers do so. He's working with all the red tape. He can move it around and take Sal Italiano. Okay, you could sell meatballs during the coronavirus, no health inspection for you. He could have took that bribe. And so while he knows he's jaded, Underground Man says he's not embittered even though he likes to ruin people's day for a form of entertainment. And he's working in a government building. Tell me the underground worker is not in a DMV building, Department of Motor Vehicles, the most depressed people, air quality inspection people. Those people are like huffing 
<laughs> leaky engines all day. Of course you're not going to be happy. This is our underground man, and what audience does he have? He goes home to shout at the wall. Same. And he's pretty self-aware. At least half the DMV workers probably are just mad and they um, think, oh yeah, I'm the bitchy girl. I got a mean personality. But the underground man is aware of these elements of himself. He just knows he can't overcome it. Maybe he's just too full of spite. This guy needs a paid vacation. We got a quote from the first part. A man of character, an active man, is preemptively a limited creature. A man living in the 19th century is morally obligated to be a creature without a character. A couple big speculations, but this is cracking open his one of his philosophies he examines through the first part of the book about there's the active man, the guy who doesn't get caught up in his thoughts and just does. And th maybe he doesn't have the reflective quality, but then there's the underground man, which he categorizes himself later. And that's supposed to be like the conscious, self-aware person. So you got to have a little bit of respect because, again, this is Freud based some of his work off of Fyodor. Not that he has that much validity on the show here we've learned before. And again, in the 19th uh, century, 1800s, <laughs> there wasn't even vaudeville yet. You didn't really have anyone to pronounce your character to. There was no Instagram page for you to virtue signal who you are to people. In the 19th century, he was saying you were morally obligated to be without character. It's a pretty gleam, dark gray existence, especially in Russia. Look at all of the iterations of the cover art for this book. It's like Fyodor peeking through a dark alleyway. Not a bright place. Got a little bit deeper into how he thinks the later 1800s was a, um, like a lot of people, talent was lost to factories and industrialization probably thinking about his dad the underground man moved on the outskirts of st petersburg well he moved out there when he received six thousand rubles from a dead relative otherwise he wouldn't have been able to afford the place and he has a servant there with some of the leftover money which he just sees as like a stupid ill-natured country woman it's definitely not the best living situation he knows he could live elsewhere in st petersburg and uh, probably be better for his health, but he is where he is, which is his attitude throughout the book. Fun fact is that Dostoevsky was 40 when he wrote this, so you could see the parallels. He was probably back in St. Petersburg as well. A couple weeks go by of him just doing this routine of coming back and rehashing all of his thoughts to himself. And one day, just laying in bed for like 48 hours in this valley of despair he's going through he says he wants to become an insect but his consciousness won't allow him people back then would refer to the insect the town what do you call it before the town vagrant the town drunk the town surf they called those people insects like think about what's going on with the coronavirus uh fed just printed 10 trillion dollars you get one thousand dollars while the big banks get trillions of dollars you'd be lucky if those people looked at you as cattle, you'd be lucky if they looked at you as a rat. Those people look at you as an insect. Throughout history, if you go to Europe, people know their place in society. They refer to themselves as an insect. So Fyodor is being straight up with it. He's going, I wish I could be one of these vagrants and give up all my talents, but my consciousness won't allow it. Remember, uh, probably middle school it was, we had to read that metamorphosis book. It was like a German tale where the kid stayed in his room and turned into an, uh, like a slimy bug. 
Remember those other books? <laughs> I remember these ones from like the Scholastic Book Fair. On the, it was like a holographic cover, and the kid would turn into a different animal. I don't think that one supported my uh, argument at all, but I just remember those books were awesome. This becoming an insect thing is big symbolism for uh, poor get poor. A lot of levels to this book. Fyodor thinks on his level of consciousness, it would be better to possess only the amount given to direct persons and men of action who seem to have the correct dosage. Consciousness can be too much, you know. God's making you, he probably only needed to hit the dropper once and he sneezed and squeezed the whole thing and now you're existential thinking if you ate one too many potatoes for dinner or whatever. Up until the 1800s, you, life is suffering. That was another one of the accepted hardships. Not, <laughs> so it's never been cool to talk about being sad and fetishizing mental diseases now you know you get likes if you tweet on instagram i'm feeling sad i mean if you're a hot girl that is but <laughs> again this is the first time it's kind of being bought up and he's trying to identify different types of consciousness as different diseases which <laughs> you see he's 200 years ahead of his time he's like the first psychotherapist fyodor out here and he tried to say active man underground man why do you think 40% of Americans, of age Americans, don't vote. I mean, probably 20% of them are lazy, but like 20% probably know it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> yeah, all the primaries are rigged, but definitely not the federal election. No logical inequity there. He put some really important points out there a couple hundred years in advance. Another consciousness quote he had wrapping up the first part. The more conscious I was of goodness and of all that's good and beautiful, the more deeply I sank into my mire. I guess appreciation doesn't even work for this guy. He needs some selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. This guy might have the real big sad. Fyodor, <laughs> he has the sad pass. He's got the free tweets to tweet edgy 14 year old deep things like Bart Simpson in all black goth attire Fyodor has the pass and so through all these levels of consciousness he's getting into with the underground man he concludes that one is not responsible for being a scoundrel most people are a slave to their natures anyway a little bit of a determinist argument there but he wonders if it's any consolation to the person who realizes they're a scoundrel. So if like some guy who's a kleptomaniac steals without even realizing he's stealing, do you think the guy who's like, I, 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 I'm poor, man, I just needed something to sell to eat tonight. Do we give that guy some more leniency? Yes, but in that old judgment, everybody got hung because that was the only entertainment they had. So he's making a much bigger point than it is to say now. Which is that there's uh, gray areas in crime, you know? Let's get part two here. Life is a toothache. He just gets dandier and dandier. The direct man, as we were talking about before, the man of action, is almost always fueled by revenge. He's fast acting. There's not a long-term goal there. But revenge is a fuel that you could store up and it could last you a lifetime. The man of acute consciousness, the underground man, cannot carry out revenge. Instead, he retreats to his hole. 
Fyodor has a story about this in the second part, so we'll save, hang on to that idea, not explore it too much for now. You can see his writing style wasn't all together. <clears throat> in a real novel, you would integrate the psychoanalysis with the characters, but it's kind of separate in this part. Second half's going to be a little bit quicker, too. <clears throat> Sounds like I got the Rona over here, doesn't it? Ooh-wee! Lucky you can't get sick through a podcast. So he described himself uh, retreating like a mouse. He's saying for the acute consciousness, the acute man, the cutie patootie guy, revenge is also seen as an act of savagery by the consciousness. So even when you do get revenge, you uh, kind of... It doesn't feel good when you see the pig blood dump on Carrie at prom. This is a common theme in literature. It doesn't feel good. It's better to forgive Jesus, that was his whole fucking message. Forgive and forget. And he bought up an important quote, one that George Orwell dwelled on after when he's writing Animal Farm, based off of some of Fyodor's work. Two, <laughs> not a very deep quote, but again, these are different people in the 1800s. Twice two makes four. It's a reoccurring motif throughout the book. Twice two makes four. It's like one of the consensus of reality type of thing. I've been reading some Robert Anton Wilson lately, and he's about like, this guy's kind of out there. He talks about reality tunnels. And so it's like everybody's converging reality tunnel is what decides our agreed upon dimension, whatever you want to call it. Math could be based on a different model, like we've explored on the show before. If an alien comes, he's going to have different symbols for the math. If humans agree upon a different base unit aside from zero, two and two can make five. I know, you're not... People are going, what? I learned that in kindergarten. That's the point, indoctrination. So, <laughs> the underground man dislikes both the laws of science and the direct man's ready acceptance of them. So, Fyodor is fucking swinging for the fences in the second chapter here. He's saying, <laughs> go back and listen to the delusion of science, the science delusion broadcast that we had. Fucking mind buster coming true with declining corona numbers. And the only people that got it were Greta Thunberg and Tom Hanks, who's going down for pedophilia. What a great distraction. <laughs> the underground man does not like people who were blindly accepting science back then. Probably also because back then there were a million snake oil salesmen. I don't want to get too deep into those ideas. It is a bonus episode. I can talk about whatever I want. But we'll glaze over it <laughs> for the sake of Fyodor. That sounds like a fucking Star Wars name. Underground from notes we read. All that rejection of consensus of reality is really trying to show you that the underground man is a romantic. He lives, breathes, eats, writes, and performs the ideas of romanticism. He tagged it with a very romantic point about rebellion being painful, but it's part of life. Again, bringing us back to a Russian idea you don't need to be a romantic to know. Suffering is mandatory. It's part of life. And we get the name of the chapter here. He goes into another pretty good analysis about how there's some sort of an enjoyment to a toothache. Kind of like how he says at the DMV he got a sick little giggle out of ruining people's day. But he described it a little bit better. I got a quote. But as the ache continues for days, the moans become a desire to force others to suffer as you are suffering. And further it goes, the moan becomes nasty, disgusting, and malignant. 
<laughs> malignant, beautiful choice of word. He uh, <laughs> chose that choice of words before germ theory and we knew about cancer. Think about it, blind and malignant. Malignant wants to infect what is around it to survive. It's why people say like uh, negative energy is toxic. Don't bring that vibe around me, whatever it is. Holds a lot of weight, even the underground man knows. Underground man knows intimately through his DMV examples. He would say that knowing other people hate you for doing it, so knowing they're kind of in on you getting pleasure out of it adds another layer of pleasure. <laughs> he's um, I don't know if he's got like a demon riding his soul, but he's feeding off the negative energy. But he's not doing anything with the negative energy. We have this drop ready, willing, and waiting. If you only knew the power of the dark side. The underground man is harvesting <laughs> the negative energy. And he tries to break it down what he called the metaphysical level of a toothache. Saying again, the direct man simply accepts pain as part of the everyday aspect of living. But the man of acute consciousness searches for some reason or purpose to the pain. So that cry out, even though you think you're just being silly, making other people suffer like a jackass, maybe on a subconscious metaphysical level, you're crying out to other people and saying, this is all pain. Why? Why is, why is this all pain? And the direct man simply accepts, all right, this is pain. We're going to move on. You ever hear that saying, there's a difference between pain and suffering, and suffering is pain without purpose? You thought I was going to go, pain is temporary. Victory is forever. Deeper quote than that. There's usually a purpose to pain. So you're suffering if there's no purpose. It shows the underground man thinks life doesn't have a purpose. He's not enjoying the ride. So he's left wondering here with a <laughs> existential metaphysical toothache if ultimately the man of acute consciousness and perception can ever respect himself. Part three, what you can tell by now he has, is a pesky self-awareness. He started this one talking about how some men are able to find pleasure in degradation, and they are free. They are outside the human condition. People who uh, like those videos of guys getting kicked in the balls by mistresses, dominatrixes, or whatever, if you find pleasure in degradation, if you find pleasure in your boss yelling at you, you are free of the pains of life. And he says some men... A percentage of the men of action are able to make it to this level of cognitive dissonance, ignorance, bliss. He takes that analysis to a deeper level about pornography from the 1800s. Maybe respect has nothing to do with emotions at all. Like, maybe these men who are okay with degradation don't need to have self-respect. <laughs> He's going, how do these men respect themselves who are insects, who grovel away for money that lasts for nothing and have nothing to show for it at the end of their life? He's saying, maybe it just doesn't compute or maybe they don't need to respect themselves. And he bought up, even in the, dude, he was Fyodor talking about social justice warrior outrage culture in the 1860s. He was bringing up how people pretend to be offended in public, and he called this parroting. So he's given psychological terms to virtue signaling. Fucking Fyodor, holy shit. That's wild. And the underground introspective man, the acute consciousness man, says we'll go on to think. 
Have I ever been offended? When have I been offended? I literally, dude, I used to say this in middle school and I thought I was a mutant. I thought I had like a superpower. I would go up to people and be like, nothing can offend me. And so people would be like, I uh, tied your mom up in my shed, beat her with electrical wire. And, uh, you, you know, where I'm going with that joke. Fucking people would try to offend me and I would just laugh. <laughs> Maybe a mental illness, but definitely a superpower in some sense. <laughs> the underground man is saying offense is a level of ignorance. Stay with me. Just like you'll admit racism is a level of ignorance. You just probably have never met someone of another race. Take it a level up like beating kids is a level of ignorance you just pass it down the line you're infecting someone with outrage to pass on another one up pedophilia anybody who touches kids 99.9999% were touched as a kid the underground man said through observing especially a lot of people getting mad in his government office like if you just took a step back and did the buddhist the zen thing at the dmv and said I'm here now, this is what I'm doing, I have to breathe through this because I am helpless to the situation around me. You can't be mad about what you can't affect. So when people get outraged, maybe they're ignorant to the First Amendment, or maybe they're just virtue signaling for other people to get respect in uh, a public square. Like, trying to make friends. Oh, we're both outraged about this. Now we could go to a cafe. But they don't have the balls to have someone to a cafe after they just get mad. It's a way to either explain that you're ignorant to what someone's saying at the moment or to try to manipulate friends out of nowhere. That's uh, Fyodor on outrage culture. Goes on a little bit more about the acute man and the doer. The man of acute consciousness is prevented from action. Therefore, he becomes bored and inertia is his constant state. So again, when you uh, get it, when you see enough of those public ignorance situations go down, the uh, He retreats, like Fyodor was saying, he's the mouse in his hole, and inertia takes over in anybody's life, and it becomes your constant state. With that inertia, Fyodor's idea was before a man acts ever, his mind must be totally free of doubt about that action. So the man of consciousness, who is filled with self-doubt and introspection, can never remove doubt from his mind, can never make the decision. That's his the quicksand he's talking about. And then the man with man of action with no self-doubt, the <laughs> like the he wins. The least aware person gets away with the most. You're in a ski lift, say, and everybody's minding their business, not breaking the silence and one guy's picking his nose and he has his uh, phone playing on on loud. The most ignorant person gets away with the most. And then again, he gets into that uh, system of a down system of revenge and how the acute man is not looking to get even. He doesn't see any progress in that. But the active man uses justice as his mechanism for revenge. So like I said before, people who have studied, I have a bachelor's in criminal justice. If you look at the legal system, it's mass processing the, the first step for putting someone in is literally called processing it's a game of the odds it's not a parthenon a greek place where you go and talk to the town and try to defend yourself and he's saying the active man knows that you need to have a, a justice room for them to <laughs> sketchily hide away and rob both the defendant and the prosecutors 
just because a guy gets a life sentence for manslaughter while driving under the influence, neither party wins. They taught us the retributive justice. That's like not just putting a guy in a cage for 10 years. You get both families together with psychiatrists. And over the course of months, you make things right. Like you're not going to have a cage match between... The Johnsons and the Millers family feud justice redemption cage match. You hear what they're doing with the coronavirus non-violent offenders? Bernie Madoff is free, people. Okay? The state of America. They're not going to have families fight each other or have any sort of real justice. People feel... People don't feel whole through our justice system. Nor have they ever through any draconian post-feudal justice system. So we're talking about inertia a little bit, (laughs) or lack thereof, when you're in the justice system, 75% reincarnation rate. You ever just read about Terrence McKenna's studies? If you give an inmate one dose of psychedelic mushrooms, they have a 25% chance of going back to prison. (laughs) We're not, this is not about restoring people's lives. It's about putting people in private prisons. Fyodor, ahead of his time. Crime and punishment holds up in the 21st century. So the underground man wants to say, yeah, I'm just lazy. He wants to define himself as lazy to people, but he knows he doesn't truly fit in with the vagrants, the sluggards, the hobos. The underground man once knew a guy. This was like, he was reflecting at this point. And he's like, this probably could have been my best chance at happiness. Which, you know, when I was six, like... My parents told me about the Tooth Fairy when I was eight. I kind of gave up on Santa, but now I'm 23. I'm thinking uh, happiness might not be a a real true eternal state that you can reach. (laughs) The underground man notes from underground, (laughs) diving into that human condition. Underground man once found this guy named Jean Lathife, a French vagabond writer in the 1850s, and he was able to turn laziness into a career he was like this guy just wrote he he journaled basically he didn't Fyodor was trashing Jean Latifete's writings he was like low-key he writes like shit but I'm jealous of his lifestyle he's got his thumb on that side of the scale in this reflection but this is a repeating script I imagine uh Hunter S. Thompson Jack Kerouac like American on the road writers have learned from Fyodor, who's going, <laughs> I might be one of the first bestsellers of all time in the modern industrialized world, but you're probably going to have a lot more fun if you do this vagabond writing style. <laughs> so at least he could warn other people with his pesky self-awareness. And he concludes this third part saying, uh, man, <laughs> this is a great point to make in Russia. A man, a real man with dignity will die at a favorable age which he sees at 40. And of course, everybody's reality tuttle. His neighbor is going to say, well, I think 80 is a favorable age to die. But he thinks you should be self-aware about when you're going out too, not inconveniencing, blah, 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 doing all that. He's uh, self-aware to the grave. And he sees like, it's been a 20-year journey, the makings of this book for the most part. And he sees the older he gets, the more bitter he gets. And he doesn't want to keep going down that road. A lot of people, misconception, think Robin Williams hung himself because he was a crazy, uh, unhinged comedian. He started to get Parkinson and Alzheimer's, and he wasn't as sharp on stage. And so, 
took the belt out. You know, <laughs> the underground man does not want to be put on life support. But he did end this chapter positively. Going back to Freud and Jean-Paul Sartre also ripped off Fyodor. He was one of the first people to put out there, meaning is going to outlast any sort of happiness or God. <laughs> and like the fulfillments of the active man, which is a super tough statement to make. But it's uh, the basis between modern American therapy. You tell people to find a meaning. And the underground man even knew that. But he was so... He grew, his ass grew roots, as you would say. He probably gave up or something. Maybe we'll see the further we get. Chapter 4, Pursuit of Happiness. Throughout the book, he spent basically the whole chapter contemplating this theory, popular theory at the time. A man's evil acts are performed from a mistaken knowledge on his own best interests. In that if he were only educated, he would at once become good and noble because he would then understand his own advantages. Kind of takes it back to that first chapter, quote, do men um, steal because they're ignorant or they're, that's their wiring determinism or do you steal rationally? <laughs> Ask Apple why they offshored $2 trillion worth of taxes over the past decade. That's a rational decision. Sometimes it gets into crime and, in crime and punishment, he dissects this more, but sometimes it's rational to act illegally or outside the moral exceptions of the state. And so what some people would consider beneficial, <laughs> a lemon that's been parked on your street for a year that nobody's claiming, if you sell it to a junk hound, some people will consider you a criminal, even though you probably just made street cleaning easier. Some people are going to consider that type of an act self-sabotage. But again, Fyodor's taking it to the next level. There's a very big sliding scale for what self-sabotage is. Just think of the term functioning, like functioning alcoholic, functioning food addict. What is self-sabotage? If you're coming out as a net positive, who are you, fucking therapist, to say what self-sabotage is? So then he moves on to the argument how intellect alone is not what pushed man to move on and progress through history and evolve. It's usually war. It's not the smart guy. It's brawn over brain throughout most of history. The winners rewrite history. He says, on a whole, man has not learned to act as reason and science would dictate. We're going in the flow of the mass consensus. We are not moving in the most rational direction as a species. So he says what man needs most, more than the ability to climb economic classes, is the freedom to choose. And he's saying, going as far to say that freedom and diversity, like cellular diversity, you wouldn't be able to fight the coronavirus if you hadn't been exposed to germs your whole life. Diversity is what life thrives on. He said if everyone was just put into the most advantageous role, if everyone was a banker, we would have no one that decided to be a garbage man. <laughs> How sad is that? People would rather be around garbage all day than other people. You can't blame garbage men. <laughs> you have to have the freedom to choose, whereas if everything was equity over equality, you'd be in a socialist dystopia. We've got to go back and list the Plato's Republic, or just read it. When we're dissecting more philosophical books on the show, I'm going to be glazing over the bases of philosophy. 
And as you know, I'm sure you see right now, rich getting richer, America was not built on equality. That's why we're the most successful country. We were based on freedom. Read some Thomas Paine. Read Thomas Jefferson's Constitution. Constitution of the United States. Pretty good read. These guys were into philosophy. The, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, they considered themselves children of the Enlightenment. All of them knew how to tr do trigonometry. They knew what sine, cosine, and tangent is. Alexandria Ocasio only knows what a spray tan is. <laughs> Look at our leaders right now. It's not putting the most advantageous person, Pete Buttigieg, in the most advantageous position in the presidency. We want freedom. We want to see how a businessman runs the country. And he's running it like his Jersey casinos that I saw go bankrupt. But we want the freedom to choose. It's that pursuit of happiness. Many authors have made this argument, Thomas Paine being one of the best. Freedom, the pursuit of happiness, is the uh, key or the only way to combat the human condition. Or antidepressants, now your doctor will tell you. Pick up a philosophy book first before you zap your brain. So with freedom being the antidote, you know, find a meaning, it's the way to tell people to be happy. The logical conclusion would be imprisoning man is how you create a dystopia, a socialist dystopia. Imprison every decision. Decide how much people are going to make a month. Everybody was religious at the time, so they were writing more determinism. Whereas Fyodor, again, the romanticist, is saying, we have a choice, <laughs> and that's... We shouldn't try to say that we are servants of God. We get to live 80 short years here. It goes back to the two and two makes four thing. This takes us to part five, the end of the first half. Lobotomize me. The underground man says, even if it were possible to reform men to act in accordance with science and good sense, is it desirable to do so? Like, he was just reprogrammed in the gulag. This is why this is such a deep point for him to make. Is it the best idea to just try to reshape my, men's minds to society? Fyodor's point is, you can definitely change the man, but it's at the risk, and pretty much undeniable, it's going to happen, of taking away what made that man unique. Yeah, you'll make him a... Uh, docile and conformative but he's uh <laughs> there goes that person you just created a droid out of someone that's like the entire basis of a clockwork orange and that's that one's about britain you know they try to hold his eyes open and unbrainwash him out of being a hooligan is that really the best way to run a society fyodor asks and so if you take that thing out of the person that makes them the person you, you can't be creative without a prefrontal cortex. Go b back and look at some of the lobotomies. You turn into a vegetable. You eat, you breathe, and you poop. And so if you take that away, what's the only thing humans have different from every animal, from your dog? We can make things. Your dog, sorry to break it to you, he can't finger paint. He can't even... Sure, you might be able to sell his finger painting uh, on Etsy... But this goes back to science delusion, the counterculture, and what makes art art. That's a commercial product that you're peddling on uh, Etsy or whatever. Just like the freedom argument, it's the creation argument. You're not as happy when you finish a project as when you're working on it. Fyodor was calling it a subconscious self-sabotage 
because you know that when you pass the goal, you're not going to feel as good. Like the reason that procrastinators procrastinate, large studies have found, is that because you know subconsciously as a person, if I did a project, I wouldn't be able to just let it sit on the shelf until the due date. You're going to be like tinkering with it and it's not perfect. It's not perfect. The procrastinators are the perfectionists. So you wait until you have only the amount of time that you have done this mental math that you know that you would need to do it and just get it done at the last second so you're not, it takes up the minimal brain space it needs to. So there is a benefit, a huge benefit to procrastinating. The people that get it done as soon as they left school were probably just more anxious at night as well. You'll find another reason to be sad or scared about something. Another quote from Fyodor, Man, unlike a race of ants which dies in an ant heap, is frivolous and unpredictable and thus loves the game of living even though the act of living is filled with uncertainties. That's the whole fun part about a game is you don't know who's going to win. A universal rule. If you go to a movie with someone and they've seen the movie, you can't tell them the ending otherwise it ruins it. Well, it doesn't really ruin it, but it changes the journey. Like say you lived your life twice. The first time around, you're fucking, we're all terrified about death we're like what happens at the end what the fuck is this are we going to go to some other world what happens at the end but then imagine you um it is reincarnation and you come back a second time you know the ending of the movie now you get to pay attention to all the details that's what you do when you watch a tarantino movie for the 50th time you look at all the cuts so it's like when people go break through the other side on a psychedelic trip when you come back you're grateful you could touch a tree and be like, damn, the, the programmers, the developers really put a lot of high graph pixels. The graphics in this thing are amazing. Maybe the underground man just needs a heroic dose of mushrooms. And so, uh, like, he started earlier talking about his dad working in the factory and the industrialization being a big waste of talent. He saw it as people dying on the anthill. And he doesn't want to contribute his body to the heap of rotting ant corpses. And so in some of the final analyzations of the underground man we get in his pathology, probably just Fyodor at the age of 40, <laughs> secluding himself having been in solitary confinement in gulags, he says ostracization feels bad at first but you know nothing else so it's like a new experience at first so you find joys in having the meal slid through your little slot in your cell you find joys in doing push-ups by yourself for the first time but with time greater satisfaction comes with feeding your higher natures which is like conversation you're having idea sex you're creating new thoughts and ideas if you watch like the first Twilight Zone ever, it's about isolation studies. And at the end, they report as 1960 studies, but we use the 1960s food pyramid. So what are we talking about here? If you spend, well, you could spend up to five years alone. And then from the five to 10 year mark, that's when people will develop multiple personalities. Like you literally watch Castaway, Wilson, you turn on a community within yourself fucking wild so he's going even if we had the mathematical calculation for well-being a lot of people wouldn't want it like if you were told the secret to happiness 
is having a coffee with your loved one in the morning and then having a community that you could go to at night. That's it. <laughs> Most people would be would reject that. No, it definitely involves having a package of Twinkies once a day. I have to play my video games and um porn. Like most people, Fyodor with a great point. If someone if the underground man saw virtual reality and flat screen TVs, he'd be like, "Why are any of you sad?" But Fyodor fucking genius before the evolution the comatosis of man into the coma giving birth to the evolutionary ai butterfly Fyodor didn't need to even have a sense of that to know what makes man happy so he says man will never renounce real suffering because through suffering man's consciousness is heightened and consciousness is infinitely superior to two times two makes four it's a good point it's what I was trying to talk about before with the consensus of reality thing but think about the end of 1984 like I said he influenced George Orwell the end of 1984 I mean they make Winston say that he doesn't love uh, what was her name Patricia or whatever They the state is able to get into your love life we know that now they have sodomy laws but the deeper point in 1984 it's not a love story it was the state was able to make him think Two plus two makes five. They changed his reality. They broke his will to live. They made their reality his. So you can live in the government dystopia they have set up for you if your reality is broken enough. And it's usually broken from birth when you get taken away from your parents at pre-K. Yes, you're allowed to talk conspiratorial now that the government is shut down and we're living in quarantine. These are truths. You could talk to 1800 philosophers. They knew consciousness is superior to whatever agreed upon math there is and consciousness it does involve love so we're not giving up on that totally that is a point of this book as well as we get into the second part but before we get that there was an important part in this chapter fiver they thought he was like chirping the czar which was why he uh, his further works were censored after this, but he still released, released Brothers Karamazov, and he couldn't be silenced. It was about some uh, metaphor about God gave you a tongue. Well, that's your ability to speak with dissent, and that is enough to have you put into a gulag in 1860s Russia. So the underground man concluded in his final analysis before his reflection to do nothing, to be consciously inert, is the best thing an intelligent man can do. He's the, like one of the first he's the first fucking hippie too without having touched a gram of marijuana. This guy is saying don't contribute your body to the ant heap. He addresses his fake audience one more time before rapping saying if I were to write these things people would reject it. Just like he said before, people do not want to hear the truth. They don't even want to hear what would make them ultimately happiest. So the more decent a person you are, the more you will repress. The more you will become inert and you'll stop burdening other people. It's counterintuitive. You're going, he needs to be shouting from the soapbox that we all need soap and Lysol for core. No, you need to self-isolate. Get the fuck out of people's way. That's what the most acute consciousness would do. And he ended it with, again, these are breakthrough points. He's going... As the uh, underground man, his closer to the imaginary audience, he says he thinks he has one repressed memory, 
blocking him from his happiness. So repressed memories weren't even a thing in that time period. He broke the wall on that, dropped the mic. But don't we all think that, oh, if there was only this one thing that didn't happen, I would be so successful. Dude, before, oh my god, these... I'm cringing right now thinking about the tweets. And it got retweeted, re-Instagrammed a million times. Does anybody feel like they were so close to getting their life together right before COVID-19? Get the fuck out of here. Delete your account. Throw your phone off a bridge. That shit makes my skin crawl. (laughs) That is not an acute observation that the underground man would make. There is no one repressed memory blocking you. You're not gonna... Next year is not your year. (laughs) Quit. Cancel yourself. Hey, it's an imaginary group that he's talking to, so he can't offend anybody in the audience. (laughs) Before we get into part two, we will read apropos of the wet snow, the most notorious Russian poem of all time written by yours truly, Nikolai Dostoevsky. I mean, Fyodor. Damn, I wish I had a sound effect for, like, a a fucking poetry circle. All right, Faden Fyodor. When from dark error's subjugation, my words of passionate exoneration had wrenched thy fainting spirit free and writing prone in thine affliction, thou didst recall my malediction, the vice that had encompassed thee. And when thy slumbering conscious fretting by recollecting torture's flame, thou didst reveal thy hideous setting of thy life's current air, I came. When suddenly I came, when suddenly I saw thee sicken, and weeping hide thine anguished face, revolted maddened horror striction at memories of foul disgrace. What does it mean? Suffering sadness, wet snow in Russia. You have to read poetry a million times to get it, but it's a pretty beautiful read, ladies and gentlemen. Nice little palate cleanser. Go check that one out. Part two. Fyodor is going over his history. He's thinking about a little civil disobedience. By the age of 24, Fyodor was, uh, I mean the underground man, was already living a solitary, gloomy existence. He wished that his co-workers would look up to him, but nobody even looked in his direction. He never understood why the other co-workers were, like, nonchalant, because he was the most pampered-looking one in the office. He was way insecure, it sounds like. He hated his own face he talked about a lot, and he was so insecure, he was so self-conscious, he thought other people hated his face as well. He mentioned how he was always the first to drop their eyes when people looked at him, too. I'm pretty sure body language reading experts try to say that's a sign of low confidence. He admits, like he said in the first part, he knew of his negatives. He knew of his shortfalls. He'd be good in an interview. (laughs) He said, I'm cripplingly sensitive, which hurts more knowing every decent man of our age must be a coward and a slave. So he looks down on his coworkers too with resentment. Probably why you don't have too many friends, Mr. Underground Man. Said he would go out for prostitutes every now and then, and he found himself reading most of the time. And one night in particular, he remembered walking by a bar and envying a guy who got thrown out the window. And on that same night, he actually entered the bar 
just trying to see what was going on, and the cop that came in to get a handle on the situation barged through Underground Man. And he was pissed. He felt like he didn't even exist. That's, like, the worst thing. That's why all those friggin' homeless people will act erratic like the crazy, crazy ones. They just want to fucking know they exist. And at the time, though, when he did get bumped by the cop... He said, I spoke a literary term in which made everyone feel lighthearted, but did not reduce my humiliation. So he, like, said when the cop walked by, oink, oink, piggy smells a donut. And everyone was like, ah, fuck the cops. And he uh, made everyone laugh. But just like Fyodor, the acute consciousness, the laugh wasn't enough for him. Like, just like revenge, doing a practical joke isn't enough to get out. Like, it doesn't make a situation whole. So he went home after that account and drafted an apology letter, a request an apology letter from the cop, which, of course, police officers, breaking news, are not writing a lot of apology letters. I don't even think they apologize to the families of the people they kill who are unarmed. That, again, goes back to retributive justice does not exist. And so this went two years. He was waiting for a response in his 20s. And the cop, he said he would dress up in, like, really expensive furs. And he would walk the cop's beat and try to bump into the cop. But he chickened out for, like, months at a time. But one day, he was, uh, it was like a cold, snowy day. Apropos of the wet snow reoccurring theme of the plot points in the book. He bumped into the cop. Full shoulder bump. Checked him. No penalty box. It was a clean hit. The cop pretended not to notice even though he was stumbling. And the underground man, when he went home, was jumping on his couch. He was celebrating. The underground man, the most stale, stagnant piece of shit, is uh, throwing a party for himself. Now at 40, he's looking back at this wild scheme going, Is this really what I wasted my time on? This is what mattered when I was 24? So he's getting a little bit of cringe over his celebration. What bought him happiness in the past is now making him uncomfortable. As he said, he gets bitter as he gets older. And he said that was one of the times that he was the active man. And um, didn't, didn't do much for him. Like, you know, the best revenge is to forget. The opposite of love isn't hatred, it's indifference. You don't care, you don't even think about the person. And so he said these types of visions from his past would constantly haunt his dreams. <laughs> so a bit of uh, narcolepsy going on with the obvious depression and anxiety from the underground man. He said when they weren't nightmares, though, fortunately, he would able to, he'd be able to ride the waves of success in his dreams. The apex of fame and honor, everyone groveling at his feet. Or he was living in utter debauchery and squander. There's no in-between for him. So, like, um, even in his dreams, there's no in-between representative of how he lives his life. Introduced the little characters right before he ended the chapter. Simonov is one of his old uh, college boarding school friends, they called it. And um, he would always reach out to Underground Man, but he would not answer. This is uh, one of the points where he did decide to meet up with the guys. Chapter Part 2, Chapter 7. High school reunion, we're calling this one. The underground man was getting some air from work one day, and he headed over to Simonov's, where two of his other old schoolmates were. And they all ignore him as soon as he enters, just as he expected. Part of the reason this guy is a isolator. 
And they're all planning a send-off dinner for another schoolmate, Zerkov, who's obviously not there. It's like a surprise dinner. Zerkov, he was like the macho guy in the school. And the underground man used to hate him. And the party is for old Xerxes is receiving an estate as an inheritance while he's in school. And the two guys that were helping plan the dinner at Simonov's were Ferfikin, a Russian-German. The underground band considered him one of his bitter enemies from high school. So not only was he not making friends, he was creating enemies. And Trudyalbov, Trudeau we'll call him, he was the other friend, a distant relative of Zerkov. So all three of the guys, minus underground man there, decided we'll pay 21 rubles each and we'll provide a good send-off dinner at what was the Hotel de Paris for Zverkov. And the underground man chimes in and he's going, hey, I could throw in eight rubles and uh, that'll bring our total to 29. You know, we'll have a party. And the other two guys, Trudeau and the German, were going, eh, you've never really been on good terms with Zverkov, you know? And the underground man insisted, threw him his eight rubles, and said, let's have a party. <laughs> the party didn't start then. Trudeau left straight up and was like, this is uncomfortable. He just budged his way into the dinner and left the apartment. Didn't put the best taste in everybody's mouth before the dinner. Simonov asked the underground man, hey, could I get the eight rubles you were just talking about? And the underground man panicked and was like, fuck, I don't have eight rubles. Fuck, I owe Simonov 15 rubles. He did. He wasn't thinking before he was offering to come. But Simonov and uh, the underground man go deep. They're friends forever, boys for life. He says, I'll spot you, it's all good. On the way home, the underground man is like, what, what came over me? Why the hell did I insist on going to this? I still find Zverkov despicable. I cannot not want to go to this party anymore. How good does canceling plans feel? He knows he should probably send the letter saying I can't make it, knowing how poor he is too and if there's going to be any other activities. But he's saying, fuck it, I'm going. And the dinner is the next night, another restless night from the underground man. And he's able to get off work two hours early to get ready for the dinner. He knew his clothes were robbing him of his dignity. He's fairly poor. He's in uh, rags compared to what the other guys are in. But he's having his daydreams again of making Zverkov look dumb with his quick wit. And uh, then the rest of the friends clinking their glasses and cheersing to eternal friendship. And he arrives at the hotel at 6 o'clock to nobody there. And he sits angrily there just waiting. But at 7 o'clock, Zverkov comes up. I definitely just fooled a few people. Zverkov is super cordial. The underground man was expecting for him to make some cheeky joke or some uh, backhand towards him. But he was super nice at first and was like, why are you not drunk? How how long have you been here for? The dinner starts at 7. And then Zverkov shows up and they all have a big laugh. The underground man was like, oh, okay. So they're not all out here to get me. I'm not. He's paranoid. He thought everybody was just about to ditch him. The age before cell phones definitely did not help the mental health of the underground man. And so they all have a laugh that he got there early. Everybody ribs him for not having a drink. They're like, well, we thought you'd be hammered then if you got here early. Shows you that everybody thinks because the underground man doesn't like to go to social gatherings, they think he just drinks by himself there was no netflix back then if you didn't like to be with people they just assumed you were an addict and so they start questioning the underground man on his job as the appetizers are coming out and he could tell the questions 
or being delivered with a little hint of superiority. Oh, you do that for work? Oh, you make that much? And he begrudgingly shared his salary with the group, which he knew immediately was a regret because they just continued to dump on him and worse. He felt extreme agony and then again, like he outbursted in the apartment when everyone was talking about money. He goes, yeah, well, I don't make that bad of a living. I could pay for my meal. Trust me. But at this point, it just gets lost. The group is fucking cackling at him. And Zverkov actually stops him and goes, You invite yourself to my birthday dinner? You do not stop our group laugh when it is at your expense. And this fucking pissed off the underground man totally withdraws from the conversation for the rest of the dinner. He's He knows he's bottom of the totem ball at the table, so he doesn't want to take place and be shat on another microcosm of his attitude towards society and so they're on like the third course of the meal underground man wants to leave but knows he can't just stand up in the middle zverkov is spouting out trying to name drop he's just telling like dumb non-happenings he told a story about oh i almost got married to this girl it didn't happen why would we care this is as boring as you telling me about your dream So the dinner ends after a bunch of rambling, and uh, Underground Man tries to make a speech, but he was way too drunk at the end of the dinner and came off insulting and rambling. So the guys do not even uh, extend an invitation to him to come party in Zverkov's hotel room. But he follows anyway and just starts pacing around in the room awkwardly, as great as he does comes up that their plan all along so there were some underlying plans his paranoia was warranted they were about to go to a brothel and he was like i'll come along with all you guys and zverkov was like no no you could stay here and underground man noticed he looked at him with that of the look of an insect like he looked at him with disgust again tying back the insect idea to the story before they head out to go to the brothel the underground man, excuse me, has to ask uh, Simonov, his close friend, for six rubles. He has to get spotted for whorebucks. No wonder why you're not happy. Chapter 8, Brothel Slumber Party. On the way to the brothel, again, it is a very wet, snowy evening, and he's already cringing at his um, actions for the night, how he had to ask Simonov for hooker bucks it's not gonna probably dawn on him until he hits 40 years old how dumb he acted at the dinner and he also realizes that any act of gesture to them of kindness to make up an apology would be futile because people remember you at your worst very astute point again from Fyodor insight into someone else's reality tunnel it's hard to write with empathy That also might be insight into why he's sharing these stories. We just learned all about this guy. Maybe this story from his youth stirs in his head and has immobilized him as an adult because it was the day that all of his peers saw him at his worst. So he rationalized by the end of the walk to the hooker house, I'm going to slap Zerkov in the face. (laughs) And he pictured it all going down in the waiting room. But Zerkov, Zerkov the (laughs) Jerkov, was there with Olympia, the best prostitute in the house. Luckily, he didn't have an opportunity to attack uh, Zerkov. He also knew that uh, Ferfetchkin and Trudeau would have beat the shit out of him. And then they would have had to duel the next day. And an underground man knew he didn't have a gun either. So he's like, all right. 
we are not going through with this slap the shit out of him plan. So he retires to uh, one of the rooms upstairs. They pass out until 2 a.m. He has a nice little time with the six rubles. And just like uh, (laughs) the underground man gets off weirdly on life, he gets a sick pleasure out of the prostitute having to deal with his unwashed, disgusting body. (laughs) He's Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, yeah, bitch, you want that movie? Suck this nasty dick. Yeah, uh, I'm Nick Mutas. That's my Harvey Weinstein impression. It was 2 a.m. when the door slammed. And so, of course, underground man wakes up and he sees two glow-in-the-dark eyes looking at him. It winds up being the other hooker who shares this room. Her name is Lisa. And she's been at this brothel for two weeks already. And uh, she must have been out on an out call because she was just getting back in. And the underground man starts questioning her. And he shares one of his flashbacks from the day before. He's sharing, he's letting one of his own daydreams into the real world he goes you know the other day um i was walking by a whorehouse down by market street whatever like the downtown was and i saw a woman being dragged out by her hair and being put into a cheap coffin and he just like dives into this disgusting speech about her being in a shallowy icy watery grave Dostoevsky, great at descriptive writing, especially when it has to do with torturous Russian situations. He ended that whole riff about the terrible life of a hooker, saying, you could have a happy life somewhere with a husband. And Lisa responds, having a husband doesn't equate to happiness. What? Nobody saw that coming from a hooker in a whorehouse in Russia. She is the OG feminist out here. Lisa, 1880, said, I don't need no man. Hooking will do it for me. Very much like Sonia from Crime and Punishment, if you know that character, read that book. But the underground man, he's trying to break through to her. He's saying, what about love? He knows what strings to pull on the ladies. What about love? Don't you want to be in love one day? I just banged your roommate for two hours. We didn't learn each other's names or speak a word. You want that? (laughs) She finally gets more involved. She's going, well, I find pleasure in being in control of my own responses and emotions, which a lot of people... Like BDSM, why do you think leashes exist? People like giving up their control of their responses and emotions. Lisa saying the opposite. I'm thinking her pimp did like a Jedi, a men in black mind wipe on her. Underground man trying again, he's going, but maybe having a family is good. Neither of us have a family and uh, that's the only thing in common we have. Look where we are. Look how we met. And Lisa's like, good point. But... A lot of dads at this time, 1880s Russia, 60s, are selling their daughters. You know, it's like tradition, tradition, right time period. But if you didn't have a first son, you had to take care of it. And uh, most of the prostitutes, too, that she knew had an abusive father. So she's like, it's not like my odds of happiness go up if I have a father. And uh, underground man is like, whoa, this chick thinks like me, a depressed, sad sack. He tries to say, but those are families without a love for God. The right families are supposed to inspire courage. And Lisa goes, oh my God, you speak like a book. And this was something no one ever told the underground man. Which takes us to part nine, service workers. They were still talking in the dark, so I guess that adds another layer to the conversation. They didn't see each other's face and they were already connecting. How sweet. 
The underground man says that it would be an honor to be a brethren of yours, but maybe in another life we would be lovers. So he's extending an olive branch to her, saying we should be frange, and maybe we'd be lovers some other where. And he says, tries again, trying to get her out of the house. In this whorehouse, your dreams are insignificant. It's the clients that you make come true. And this was a good point the underground man made. Why prostitution is just as much selling your soul as it is selling your body. When you're giving up your dream for someone else's one-night sexual dream fantasy even, you're selling your soul. And the more of your soul you sell, the less you have, just like the lobotomized man before. As good of a descriptive writer Fyodor was, he was good at degrading things with his writing. So he's really tearing down to the bones, no, to the soul of this hooker. Underground man tells Lisa... If you're lucky, by the age of 25, you're going to look like you're 35 as a hooker. You're going to wind up, at best, on the worst house on Haymarket Square, which was someplace in St. Petersburg. Again, instead of an icy hooker body, he told her about all the hookers down in Haymarket Square get drunk by 9 a.m. and are covered in bruises that they don't even know where they came from. And every single hooker thinks they'll recover, but 90% wind up like the body he saw being pulled out and dragged out by the hair. And he's realizing that he's got Lisa because he hears a tear hit the ground, the underground man's supersonic hearing, lights a candle, and Lisa is crying. He made her cry. That's uh, his wet dream, being a DMV worker. He made someone cry. So he apologizes under candlelight, how romantic, and invites her to his address. And she accepts. Hmm. And uh, she tried to give a token of gratitude to the underground man, which was like a letter from a med student she went dancing with once to be like, this is why I don't like men. They don't fucking get it. And the underground man was like, I see you. You uh, definitely want to be in control of your senses. You don't want to give it up to anybody. Same with the underground man. And uh, he leaves the letter with her, knowing that it's her treasure. And he walks home in nothing other than the wet snow. He's got loathsome thoughts popping in his head. Uh, he's angry. Why the hell did I let her know that much about myself? Why did I give her my address? When he gets home, he gets home to his mess and is like, holy shit, she could be here at any moment. And he starts getting angry that he ever even invited her. But as the days go by, he starts to imagine, damn, but what would it be like if she showed up? He's getting a little horny. He's getting randy, baby. <laughs> he writes a uh, love letter not a love letter he just write, wrote a letter back to Simonov with uh, some money in it trying to repay him for the hooker night he's trying to get back on the wagon off the wagon on the wagon he's trying to right some of his wrongs he has hope it looks like and of course a couple weeks pass by he starts to slip into his old habits and stagnate and he's uh, yelling at that maid the, the young lady the dirt poor person so he's a middle classer Unfortunately, Lisa walks in exactly when he was yelling at the maid. Which brings us to our final chapter, chapter 10, Cold Hands, Warm Heart. Nah, he's looking like some uh, Scrooge McDuck type of character. He's in his nightgown, covered in piss and poop stains, and Lisa's watching him spout in rage at a young woman. So he immediately starts babbling, trust me, I'm a man of honor, I would never yell at her. And he immediately commands the maid to go out and pick up some tea. Lisa, although denies the tea offering, she gets him, she gets the underground man some water and walks him over to his bed. She sees that he's in a fit of rage. Underground man 
does his normal routine of outburst and then apology. He's apologizing for his stupidity to Lisa, and she responds that she wants to get out of sex work. So Underground Man got through to her, and he's uh, letting it hang in the air. They do five minutes of silence. And then he says, my heart reached out to Lisa, but something internally held me back, which was compassion. That's a super fucking deep statement. It went over my head. I don't know. Maybe he's more committed to being a fucking vagrant writer than he is to a lover. That's a bad analysis. <laughs> um, he admits to Lisa that he was hurt on the night that he came to the brothel. Like he said, my friends were shitting on me all night. That's probably why I was saying these mean things to you. I'm sorry. He doesn't really apologize much, underground man. He's making some progress with her already. But again, cycles back within his like five-minute soliloquies. He came full circle. He's going, oh shit, she just saw me apologize in my own apartment. I could never let her see me like this. I fucking hate this woman. He tries to get up, ending the conversation, but Lisa wraps her arms around him, and for 15 minutes, 15 minutes, the underground man bursts into genuine hysteric tears, and they hold each other. 15 minutes of crying. He probably has like 50 days worth of tears built up in this stern face of Fyodor Dostoevsky. But it comes out in these novels, you know? Underground man getting his 15-minute hug. Fyodor living in gulags, getting his eternal recognition on the New York Times bestseller list. He admits one of the most Fyodor things. What breaks the silence after the 15 minutes was Fyodor said, I cannot get on without domineering and tyrannizing over someone. Knows he's a bit of a control freak, and in his uh, position in the world, he has no control. So he admitted one of the most therapeutic things he could admit. And then the maid comes in with some tea that she had been brewing. Underground Man is pleased that Lisa wasn't overwhelmed by the outburst, and he's re reassuring her it won't happen again. He admits to her that he doesn't hate her presence, which um, is a good sign in his life. Fucking smooth, bro. You know I don't hate you, babe. <laughs> That's the doghouse. They leave his room. Lisa's saying that she'll go, and he forces something into her hand before she leaves the apartment. He sits on his couch for a little bit thinking, what the hell just went down? He tries to run after Lisa after a few minutes, but he goes down to the street. There was no one there. And the underground man drops down to his knees, yelling to God, Why must I go on? He is once again down in the cold, wet snow. Underground man goes back up to his apartment and finds wadded up a crumpled $5 ruble. She wouldn't even take his sorry note. And here we are. <laughs> Two decades later, the underground man scribbling these feelings hectically onto a piece of paper. Maybe this is his self-punishment for never making it right with that person, for making her, for convincing her her work is not the way to go, and then saying, I can't love you. Maybe this is how he gets over it, or maybe the underground man spoils and dies with that. So why would anybody care to hear a story about a guy who's in his apartment talking to a fake audience and scribbling down stories from his past. A guy who, objectively from these stories, ruined his life out of spite. He knew he could have chased the girl down in the streets. He was saying, if I don't find her tonight, I'm going to resent this tomorrow, and then I'm going to be sad the next day and the next day. 
just like the chase the girl to the airport at the end of the rom-com but the Fyodor the Dostoevsky novel is much more fucking romantic with the wet snow falling down it's the same trope though you just get a little bit more raw emotion and truth to it and so he made the rom-com mistake he didn't run to the airport why would anybody care about a guy that ruined his life out of spite because a majority of men do this and have been doing this since the 1800s man this is one of the most ringing true novels for a man to read at the age of 24 or at the age of 40 to know that everybody goes through this midlife crisis so the underground man ends it saying a novel needs a hero but it works just as well with an anti-hero you made it through notes from underground millions upon tens of hundreds of maybe millions people have read this he's one of the first people to prove you can write <laughs> a global humanity bestseller without having a true hero because it mirrors the worst qualities or the most prevalent qualities in all of us so the underground man, he says, maybe, maybe talking to the fake audience and maybe by scribbling down all this nonsense, I have faced my life a little bit more acutely than the readers, than the active man who's just living for stimuli and experience. So he admits, hey, whatever fucking, if this book doesn't do well, it was pretty cathartic to write it. <laughs> he covered his ass at the end. Amazing classic i guess our second fiction ever on nick's nonfiction, but this was fyodor dostoevsky's life this isn't fiction and even if it isn't exactly fyodor's life this is how millions of billions probably of russians and humans have lived in history amazing one of the first fucking psychological books ever and our first bonus episode i'm happy you guys stayed along till the end thank you fyodor dostoevsky for comforting young men aging men dying men nasally men we all out here. We all listening. Thank you guys for tuning in to Nick's Nonfiction with your host, Nick Muniz. I will see you in just one week for the anatomy of baseball. If we are still quarantined, we might still be throwing bonuses left and right. I love you guys. Books are only getting better here on the show. Broadcasts are getting better. See you next time. Peace.